One thing I love about working with people at the end of life is you can fall in love and that's not a hazard. That's not a problem. You can just let that happen. That's a beautiful thing and you're not going to be together for very long. When I'm working with patients who have an indefinite lifespan, I have to almost watch it. I don't say love very often because it can send odd signals. And But when you're really at the end, there's a, there's a permissiveness that's really powerful. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today we have the honor of speaking with BJ Miller, a renowned palliative care physician, author, and speaker. BJ is a thought leader in the field of conscious dying. He's well known for his 2015 TED Talk, What Really Matters at the End of Life, which has been viewed over 10 million times. When he was a sophomore at Princeton University, BJ experienced a tragic accident that resulted in the loss of three of his limbs. He followed a path in the medical field and eventually fell in love with palliative care while he was in residency. He's been helping patients and their families ever since. In this conversation, BJ shares his insights on the differences between palliative and hospice care, as well as the emotional and spiritual needs of patients facing terminal diagnoses. He also talks about his own experiences working with patients and their families, and how to help people come to terms with their own impending death, including how to help them become unstuck from a negative narrative. I found one of the most fascinating topics in this conversation to be the role of psychedelics in end-of-life care. BJ shares his thoughts on the recent John Hopkins study concerning psilocybin mushrooms and end-of-life anxiety in cancer patients, where up to 80% of participants reported significant reductions in anxiety and improved quality of life. As we wrap up the conversation, BJ shares his thoughts on how he sees palliative care evolving in the future and what role he sees himself playing in that evolution. He also talks about how his online palliative care service, Metal Health, will free him up to do palliative care the way he wants to do it. This conversation took place live at Esalen on February 8th, 2023. I came out of this evening really understanding, possibly for the first time, how a thoughtful relationship with death can help us tap into our human potential and transcend our limits. So without further ado, let's dive into this thought-provoking conversation with BJ Miller. Yeah, thank you. Check, check. <clears throat> yeah, thank you Hello. so much for, for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam. See you all. Thank you very much for coming. So, BJ, could you talk a little bit about what led you down the path of palliative care? I got injured in college in some pretty obvious ways. Um, and that kind of tuned me into medicine and then graduated uh, in 93 and kind of... I had gotten very good at living in the moment by necessity. There was just enough to do to get through the day. And there was a sort of a feeling of rolling to a cliff's edge at graduation. And I really didn't know what I was going to do. But I knew I wanted to work with these experiences, not pretend to put them behind me or overcome them. And that pointed me towards medicine. And I went into sort of medical training thinking either I won't be able to do it for physical reasons or intellectual reasons and I'll stop or I'll fall in love with it and it'll work out. And I sort of fell in love with it. It's a long answer to your question, Sam. Sorry, <laughs> brother. Um, I sort of fell in love with medicine, at least the idea of medicine. And we can talk all sorts about healthcare. Um, but there's also this sort of almost inherent necessary disillusionment that happens in medical training. And mm. I was going to drop out. I, I thought I was going to go into rehab medicine, work with other folks with disabilities and because that was the impulse was to just work from these experiences and more than like a love of medical science mm. so then i finally did a rotation rehab medicine and really didn't like it it was just 
for all sorts of reasons. Um, and I was going to stop. What, what did you not like about the rehabilitative medicine? It was, you know, the field at least that time, and maybe it shifted, but it was very mechanical in nature. Um, it was very, I mean, medicine is a beautiful thing, and it's also a very reductive thing, especially around disability and issues that aren't fixable. Medicine gets very unpoetic. Um, and, and that I was experiencing that. And for one, I, when I would do the work, like it was on the rotation, I'd always hear people kind of point to me, see, see Johnny, you, if you stick to it, you too can be a doctor. <laughs> I just feel like, Oh, I'm signing up to be like a poster child, you know, not for one. And then the second was, that I started to say it was just so mechanical. Like it wasn't about the existential issues or the philosophical or the spiritual issues were nowhere to be found. It was just about the angle of a joint. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. for that reason, I just said that this is not for me. And I knew enough from my experience coming close to death that I wasn't going to just keep doing this just because what else am I going to do? So like, I wasn't going to sacrifice life to medicine. So then I was going to dump it. And then the dean talked me into doing an internship the first postdoc year. And once you do your internship, you can get your license to practice as a GP. And so like she said, do that. Better Then you can stop if you want. And I did that, and I ran into palliative care literally in the hallway of uh, the hospital during my internship and fell in love with it instantly. I did a two-week elective, and after the first day, I knew I was that's what I was going to do. Mm. Would you be open to talking a little bit about the evolution, <clears throat> the personal evolution that you went through after your accident in college? Because I'm, I see you as this person, and I've listened to lots of interviews that you've done kind of in preparation for this talk, and you have a really positive, not Pollyanna, but a positive kind of useful outlook towards life. And I'm wondering about, you know, you went through this experience, a near death experience, and then, you know, you were there, Mm -hmm. you know, in the, in the hospital and you had to go through the process of, okay, I'm going to live my life. And I was wondering if you could just talk about your outlook and how that evolved. Yeah. You know, I had a, I, so I grew up with a mom who had polio and post polio syndrome and has been progressively disabled over the course of my life. When I was younger, she walked on crutches, and now she uses an electric wheelchair and sort of progressive neurological illness. Um, but growing up with mom, I was sort of tuned into she, to disability rights issues, and I had inherited the understanding from her that, that disability is a word. It's... Um, it's a relative, it's a construct, you know, it's basically a made up notion and that I knew that I deserved or something like that to be alive or something like that, that the world had a place for me, even if it didn't seem like it. So it's almost like she's, I knew those to be the answers from her example. So sort of like, I knew that I kept an eye on that and just kind of kept pulling my, inducing myself to actually believing that. And I I was very blessed with a lot of friends who, um, you know, I was, I got so much help. I had, I was not alone in any way. And talk about that, Sam, it was just beautiful watching people show up and took a while to let all that love in, but they, they love me. So I could take that on faith too. And then sort of pull myself towards that Mm. and fill in the space between until I could believe it. Mm. Something like that. Yeah. 
And so that went, you know, sort of like the first five years were really kind of monumental and one day after another and kind of really ruthlessly, like when I'd bump up against something that seemed hard, which was a lot of the time, you'd just say, can, is it true that I can't do this? Is that really true? Or is that just, I'm tired or I don't want to do it? And I just was really diligent and to the point of tedious. I would not let myself off that hook. And so, but before, and then you get some momentum and then you start, this body is no longer this thing that's lacking something. It's just what you have and you're working with it. You have enough water under the bridge to prove it to yourself. And bit by bit, you kind of, embody yourself again. And that, that happened. And like I say, about five years time or so. Mm. Were you on track to be, to go to medical school and no. be, a, no, no. What were you interested in? I, I don't know. <laughs> I was, I was lucky. You know, I was, I was very lucky. Uh, I grew up, you know, I had a family that cared about me and put me through schools and, you know, I had a lot going for me. Um, and, all I knew, so I landed at a place like Princeton, you know, a ridiculously wonderful buffet of of knowledge and interest and beauty. And I was very much in the liberal arts mode. I And it was, I didn't, I wasn't pressured to know what to do with my life. And I, I took that. I didn't, I didn't know. And I was just studying things because they interested me and trying to develop my brain and and, and other organs, you know, and it, and it was so really <laughs> wonderful and it was very fortunate and, and it allowed me to sit in some stew and actually choose something. Um, so no, I don't know what I was going to do, Sam. I probably would have defaulted to some silly job in finance, like, you know, some management thing like my dad did or something if I didn't find anything else. Mm-hmm. I, but actually when I said, I'm not sure I believe that I, I was, I was teetering well, well before the accident about that path. But I guess the answer is who, who knows? I, I really don't know. And in some ways, how nice. It's not like I was heading there and then all that got cut off and I couldn't be this thing I'd always dreamed of being. And then I had to go this consolation prize route. That was never really the story. Mm-hmm. So tell me about palliative care. I mean, what you, you you say that like rehabilitative mm-hmm. care, it didn't really, it wasn't really the thing for you. Then then you stumble into palliative care, and why did that pique your interest? Well, for one, it's such a the rest of medicine is such a foil, a dramatic foil. You're so aware. A typical course in medical training is you come in with these ideals and and a lot of compassion. You want to be with other people. You go through such lengths just in order to be of service. It's a very beautiful, filled with beautiful people wanting to do lovely things. It's great. But like I mentioned earlier, there's a disillusionment of actual, the facts of what practicing medicine is like. Mm. And so with that harsh background and this, this objectification that always happens and, and reducing people to their body parts. And you know, you're as you, even as you're doing it, you know, so much is getting lopped off. So you kind of either, either acculturate and buy into that, or you kind of hold on to some suspicion and it's the suspicious route is a little painful because you're at odds with what you're doing much of the time. So anyway, with that harsh backdrop and with the idea of dumping medicine right around the corner, I was, you know, I was really going to dump it. That allowed me one to be free. I wasn't stuck. So I could actually choose. It wasn't a desperate act. 
And I also was fresh with the evidence that the other route was no good, not for me. And I didn't know how to, I wouldn't be able to function in that. So when palliative care, when you meet these people who are not trying to fix you, they're not looking at you as an object to put back together, not treating you as broken. Mm. They're treating you as just living a, this, this is what happens to a body. This is life. It's not, it's, it's a, it's an importantly different frame where it has, it can be. And the subjective sense is totally, you know, is welcome because of course everything's subjective. You can't wash an experience through your person and not, it, it, it is the truth. There's a truth to subjectivity. And that wasn't a problem in palliative care or in the rest of medicine. It's a problem. So it was this, this immediate feeling of relief. And you don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to posture. You show up as a human being, you know, and you can lend some other skills to that. At least this is the kind of palliative care I was taught and what I witnessed those early days. Let me ask you uh, just a point of clarification. Could you elaborate on the differences between palliative care and hospice care? Yeah, that's a good one. Thank you, Sam. Because it's really a lot of confusion around this and people suffer unnecessarily because of it. Um, So palliative care is simply just the interdisciplinary pursuit of quality of life, essentially. And our charge, the thing we respond to, medicine, you always have to frame it around a problem. And the problem we respond to is suffering, which, as we know, is like a very human experience. It's not an abnormal experience. In fact, it would be very abnormal to find your way through life and not suffer. Anyway, so pursuing quality of life and mitigating suffering is the act, is what palliative care is about. And that what a beautiful, you know, that's not... that's a philosophy we could all live by. That's a practically a religion. Um, Mm. and so that really lit up as a way of life. And so that doing, doing my job was aligned with learning things about life, which was aligned with making sense of my own experience, which was aligned with me showing up as a human being completely aware of his own suffering. And it set up a beautiful little loop that is very constructive and life affirming. If you choose it, if you, create it that way. And if you practice it that way, and that's really kind of how it's played out. Mm. So I don't have to separate my working on somebody else or on myself. Those two things are aligned. So mm. you worked at the Zen hospice project. I think it's now called the Zen caregiving project for many years. I'd love to hear about that. And, and like kind of, I'd love for you to talk about the state that people can get into when they receive a terminal diagnosis. What, what generally happens? Well, I'm smiling not because of that question, but because I just realized I didn't answer your previous question at all about hospice versus palliative care. (laughs) (laughs) We'll circle back, man. Jeez. So can you rephrase it again, Sam? Can you say it again? Sure. I mean, talk to me about working at the Zen Hospice Project. How did that Mm. come about? And, Mm. you know, what did you encounter? Yeah. So the reason, so Zen Hospice Project, as you said, it's now Zen Caregiving Project. Um, it's been in existence since the late eighties. It's a really magical organization in a lot of ways. And coming from UCSF and this academic medicine world, I was very attracted to here was a place that did the kind of care I was interested in, but did it from a basis of a spiritual basis versus a medical science basis. And what an interesting, bless you, what an interesting way, leading edge, you mm-hmm. know, that was lit up for me as something really powerful. And the second was the fact that it had a bricks and mortar, had a house. And I was always, I really feel there is this underdeveloped aesthetic piece that could happen in care. And 
it's not lost on most patients that hospitals are incredibly ugly places and they're assaulting <laughs> to the senses. And here was this old Victorian in San Francisco and the house itself was part of the care. It was beautiful. So anyway, that's what took me there. And then working there was, you know, it was an odd experience. We could talk on this one for hours too. Um, there was, there's a culture that was, the place wasn't quite sure. And this is me translating it. Okay. Take everything with a grain of salt. But it seemed like it was a secular organization that was, seemed conflicted. Was it really secular? Or was that just trying to attract more people? Was it trying to be Buddhist? Was it really open to everybody? It was, there was also a lot of antipathy towards medical science um, that was well deserved in the 1980s in the Bay area. Mm. Uh, I'm referencing AIDS and HIV um, and how that was treated. So all this backstory to that place, and I was never, made me feel very, so one tributary we could talk about, Sam, is that whole experience of the culture of that place and working there. But I think you're getting at your questions probably more about what was it like to sort of be in a home and live with people who were really on life's edge. Yeah. And you can say the same of a hospital in some ways, but you don't get to the person in the same way in that setting as you do in a little Victorian um, with a kitchen making beautiful smelling things and families milling around and animals walking around. And, and so in what I think uh, maybe a finally a short answer to your question is it felt like life. It felt like life. It felt like life and concentrate. It felt like all of life concentrated here with an excuse to dump the shame, with an excuse to dump guilty feelings with a, a real excuse to love people. And I don't say that lightly, but like it is an amazing thing. One thing I love about working with people at the end of life is you can fall in love and that's not a hazard. That's not a problem. You can just let that happen. That's a beautiful thing. And you're not going to be together for very long. So when I'm working with patients who have an indefinite lifespan, I have to almost watch it. I don't say love very often because it can send odd signals and, but when you're really at the end, there's a, there's a permi- can be a permissiveness that's really in, in powerful. Man, that's that, beautiful. I really felt that there. Oh, that is so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank them. In terms of the work that you do in a place like hospice or with palliative care in general, how much of your job is, is being psychiatrist or how much of the job is in the mind? A ton. A lot. Like, yeah, a lot. Um, it, it also depends. I mean, there are, su- there are <clears throat> sort of schools of thought within palliative care. You will meet some colleagues who, who translate palliative care to mean symptom management. Yeah. And, you know, which oftentimes you're numbing someone out or, you know, trying to turn down the noise of symptoms, which is an absolutely wonderful pursuit. But from, my, from the school of palliative care I come from, that's, that's sort of step one. You turn down the noise of symptoms so that you can be present with your life so that you can tune into the rest of things besides pain. So you can be present for what time you have. That's really the much bigger work. And so that gets to your question. That's where a lot of the psycho- the psychology is playing out and trying to get, trying to be with someone so that they get right with themselves before they go and appreciate life while they still have it. That, you know, you're bumping up against watching people kind of come to terms with all they can't control, which for most of us is a pretty tricky, that's some pretty tricky math. 
And so, yeah, we are constantly working with the mind. And more specifically, sort of how it's, it's like a framing issue. You can work with people to, so that they can understand their experience in a relative way, in a framed way. Like, am I horrible, like for myself, am I just horribly unlucky? I've lost three limbs, poor guy, right? Or am I super lucky that I have this one limb that when I happen to be right-handed and they make beautiful prosthesis? I'm, am I lucky or am I unlucky? Which is it? You know, like, and the answer is both. And a lot of people force themselves into sort of, they don't give themselves I don't know what the word is, the respect or the space to feel all the feelings while they still have them. That was a lesson at the end of life for me when I was close to it. I was just, I was almost grateful to feel pain. Like, oh my God, I can feel anything. I'm here to feel something. It is really very often this framing exercise, which for me is the boil down answer to your question of the psychology at work Mm. and helping people craft a worldview in which they still belong. Because the world sends a lot of signals to sick people, to old people, to disabled people that this isn't really a place for you. So you have to reframe continuously. Mm. Uh, and there's so much loneliness in the world. And it's so interesting that the, the, the tie that binds a lot of us is the fact that we know loneliness. That becomes the point of contact. And so you start making these connections in this work. And to my mind, a lot of that is a psychological enterprise. You know, uh, I just lost my mom about a, a month ago. And it, yeah, it still hurts. But I, I would love for you to discuss, to discuss the importance of building relationships with the, the you know, the, the families of the people who are going to die. How does that play into hospice care? Mm, in a big way. And thank you for sharing that, Sam. You know, this work, this subject can get real abstract if we're not careful and that. That's a little bit of a problem. This is a very real subject if we, once we let it, once we turn attention to it. So thank you for bringing your family in here. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. What was your mom's name? Maxine. Well, so in answer to your question, <clears throat> families play a huge piece of and, and the role, I mean, technically, if you were to read a, a definition of hospice and palliative medicine, you would see that the unit of care is the patient and their family, and which is an explicit acknowledgement that no, we don't exist, and we're not this autonomous in a vacuum thing. There is no independent person on this planet, and palliative care acknowledges that explicitly. So, so officially the family's part of it. And in practice, um, that's kind of gets at one of the reasons why we started mental health was because, yeah, we give the field says families are welcome, but the way healthcare is wired, the spouse of a patient of mine can't set an appointment with me in, in the clinic cause they don't, they're not, they're not the patient. So we, there's a little bit of lip service to the idea of a family. Mm. Um, so, we pulled ourselves out of the healthcare structure in part to make a lot of space for the family. And I'm, when I say family, I mean by choice or by blood, you know, but back to your question, really it's just the acknowledgement that we exist in relationship. Mm. And even if I'm trying to address your suffering, there's no way I can honestly do that without taking to your account, your relationships. That's mm. how you experience your life. Yeah. So it has to be. 
What about the emotional impact on you? What is what is that like working in the the field of living and dying? Mm. You know, for all the reasons we're saying, you know, in some ways it's so awesome because the things that otherwise you might just get to daydream about or think about when you look out at the sunset here or, you know, when a lot of us with daily lives that pull us away from these kinds of thoughts and questions, this, I get, this is my job. You know, I get to hang out with these questions like this and play around with thoughts like this. So in some ways it's really wonderful. And like we were saying earlier, that alignment between the personal and the professional and self and other and the individual and the collective, these are all in this stew. So in so many ways, it's awesome. Um, and then there's also the, the realities of practicing this and how do you make a living and charging people for things that you feel weird charging for. And, you know, there's all sorts of trickiness to it as a practice, as a business. But I think the biggest way, and I was thinking about this a lot recently, I don't know, I circle through this, what I'm about to say, which is I find myself sometimes really kind of out of step with a lot of daily life stuff, with people in daily life stuff. And sometimes myself included, I'll feel out of step with myself for wanting to watch TV or I don't know if there's, I'll think of a better example, but the point is like, in this frame, like we're talking, this big existential frame of connection and poignancy and every, everything matters. That's a really exquisitely tender, nuanced, subtle, sensitive place. Sensitive place. And then you step out in this world that's really not wired for sensitivity, right. where it's almost that is a liability. Yeah. Um, so bouncing, toggling between these experiences or these backdrops, I find it kind of exhausting. And sometimes I'm still in one world when I'm talking to someone in another world. And sometimes I don't, I'm not really present with my friends in this way. I'm, I'm thinking about the patient and sometimes the squeaky wheels get my grease. Someone's got to be really suffering for me to go to them and my friends and family will get short shrift or I will. So there's some challenges to it for sure. I don't think I will do this work forever for that reason. Yeah. Like, I think you hang out in this distorted field or working with people who are in this array of distortion as they're kind of discombobulating and, and it's powerful and I'm learning so much from it. And at some point it's consuming, especially if you're in a role to be the person that people are looking to, to somehow make this thing better. So I don't think I'll do it forever for this reason. Yeah. How about spirituality? I, I have learned that you're an agnostic. I'm just wondering if being around death and dying professionally for many years, has it influenced your spirituality? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's sort of like the aesthetic around spirituality is often what bothers me more than, you know, it's sort of like there's a look and there's a language and there's a head tilt. Sometimes it goes with it all that pulls me away from the guts of it. And so I get sometimes a little distracted by the, tra the trappings or the language of spirituality. But that was also me kind of trying to be a little intellectual and smarter than somebody or something like that. And I finally have, now I'm 50, almost 52, and I think I'm letting myself be, be spiritual. No, that's not quite right. I'm letting myself acknowledge spirituality in a newer way, and I'm not 
pecking at it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is, I think, a good. I think that's good news. <laughs> um, so, and I so a it's allowed me to actually talk about it and love it and be with it, and 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 that's that has been really powerful. And it's also pulled me towards this really, like you were saying, agnostic, like literally just the joys of not knowing and mystery and just mm. not needing to solve things. It's such a relief. There's a real innocence in there. And I love, love, love that. And I, then I also, speaking of the word, you know, I finally had to let's define it for myself so I could use the word and mean it. And I think for me, it's sort of spirituality. Sort of, I guess it's like a sense of connection that you can't see or prove, you know, that I can't, I can't prove that everything's connected, you know, but I sure can sense that truth. Mm. And I think a spiritual crisis is when people are cut off from that connection and that shows up in my line of work. Yeah. Pretty commonly being cut off from connection. Yeah. Because one is facing the end. Yeah. And because their sense of self is disintegrating their identity I'm, these are, you know, there's many reactions to death, but I'm just, in general, people's identities are often shaken and you can be aware, so hyper aware of all the sense of loss and therefore all the things that aren't happening, you know? And so, yeah, that, that discombobulation, uh, is, is a big part of the job is what you're kind of guiding folks through. And you also know that even as they're feeling disconnected from who they used to be, who they maybe wish they were, and they're pre-grieving the, the sense that maybe they're going to be cut off from life altogether when they die, the grand disconnection. So, you know, that's all happening. And so, but the beautiful thing is, so yes, spiritual sort of strife is all over it. And then there's this lovely thing is if you can hold that discombobulation, make some room for it so they get to know it belongs to, then people can let go of, by force or by choice, all the things that they are actually losing and start to feel the thing that actually is still there. And that's a very beautiful transition to watch. So... I don't know too often how many people, I, I, most people by the time they get to their death have, you know, I don't know if the words not solved that spiritual disconnection, but it's been proved, it's been revealed to them that they can't lose it or something like that. Do you find that you have to help people navigate through regret? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. That's a, that's a big one. And in a lot of the work, if you get to, if you get to hang out with folks upstream of death, you're often, or I will often use regret, like regret avoidance as how do we shape our future? Make choices now that you're not going to regret or going to minimize regret. And along the way, learn to realize you're going to find something to regret. So also learn to like live with regret, not just minimize it. So there's a lot of work that happens around that issue of regret. You mentioned upstream of death. What does that mean? Well, <laughs> is that like a whole, like, well, I just mean like if level. you have, if, you know, let's just say you have a diagnosis of some sort of, you know, cancer that you can live for many years with. Okay. That's what I mean. That yeah. time, temporally you're not quite at death's door. That almost sounds harder. You're right on about that, Sam. 
You're very right. And this is actually some good news for those of us who may fear death or have some concerns about it. Most, what I witnessed, most of that fearing death is things that, is something that living people do. Like fully, like when death is this abstract thing that might come get you tonight or tomorrow. That, you know, folks who are actually dying, especially if they've got some love and support around them. A lot of that fear goes away. A lot of the regret just melts into, yeah, of course I got regret. I've got sorrow. I've got joy. I've got all this stuff. Um, by the way, say, now what was your question? I'm going to just ramble off. No, I think that was good. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Let's talk a little bit about the end of life anxiety and, and, and maybe foray into this psychedelics question. Cause I, I know there's been at least one good study. I think it was from Johns Hopkins mm-hmm. about um, psychedelic mushrooms easing uh, end of life anxiety. I, where do you come out on this? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, it's hard not to be thrilled uh, about the psychedelic, the return to psychedelic work. Um, you know, a lot of us are now more and more aware of the history, uh, sort of modern psychiatry history, where some amazing uh, data out of the 50s and 60s and, and the political history of why this whole thing got shut down and and of course, that's just the medical Western view. A lot of these chemicals have been around for eons, and people have been so. Anyway, there's a lot to be interested in, a lot to, and there's a lot to love about the current data. I mean, if you, it's stunning. I mean, like we're talking, some of the hardest things we do in palliative care is beyond the symptom management. How do you get someone in touch with a mean, what like with meaning, and mm-hmm. how do you help someone actually feel connected, not just intellectually? So no, oh yeah, yeah, we're all related, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, feel, feel it. So getting out of the head and into the body, uh, that sort of discombobulation process, kind of practicing falling apart, and that can turn into like instead of falling, well, you're kind of like surfing it, you're like rolling with it, and you're moving with your life. That that is that's really some gorgeous stuff that can happen with psychedelics that otherwise just sound like a cool story, but you're not going to have the visceral. Mm-hmm. I know I'm connected to everything. I know I'm in this world. I can't possibly leave this universe. Like I, that is not a thought anymore. If you do some uh, guided work with psychedelics, you can come away knowing that in your bones, quite literally. And for someone who's coming to the end of their days in this body, you can imagine the poignancy of that feeling. Uh, I mean, that's it, huge. And in the medical world, if we could, you know, if that weren't a, you know, if we could bottle that, if drug companies could, like that would, you know, this would be ten zillion dollars a pill, and it would be all the talk, you know. Um, so these are impacts; these are effects that are enormous and seem durable. And let's be thoughtful too. Let's not let's be let's be careful to learn as we go, and not just throw ourselves willy nilly into these experiences and let's respect these chemicals and let's not confuse the chemical with the effect we're trying to achieve. I don't think you need to be altered to feel connected to the cosmos. Mm. Um, So, so there's a lot to do to frame these, these drugs well, these experiences well and, and, and thoughtfully. Um, But once within that sort of thoughtful space, I'm very bullish. I'm just, I just think these are going to be, this is a sort of a new day. And the alternative before Sam was if you came to me and you had, you know, death anxiety, 
I can't tell you what it's like to be dead. I, what can I say to you? We can talk about those fears. I can help you feel not alone. I can give you Valium, put a wet blanket on your nervous system. So, you know, treat your anxiety that way. I can kind of gork you out with pain medicine, but that's very different from, oh, you're, you're worried about meaninglessness. Let me give you meaning. Like, you know, that is, (laughs) that, that is, that is just a whole other deal. And it's thrilling to think that that's an increasingly accessible. Let's talk about the future of palliative care. How do you see palliative care evolving? And talk to me about mental health, the work that you're doing there, please. Yeah. You know, shouldn't we all expect that our doctors care about our suffering and want us, want, want, want us to not hurt unnecessarily? You know, can't we all, wouldn't we all expect that our doctors want to participate in us for having a meaningful life, et cetera? Like, why is palliative care a specialty? You know, mm. isn't all of medicine sort of trying to do this? Shouldn't, shouldn't it be? And of course, the answer is no, it's not. And so that's why this field had to come along as a little bit of a corrective to nudge healthcare back to actually care. <laughs> and so, you know, one cool thought would be that maybe someday this little field goes away, it doesn't need to exist anymore. So I guess I'm saying two things. One is to realize this is a philosophy and explode it and make everyone feel welcome into this conversation, not just doctors and nurses. And the other is to make it so diffuse that it ceases to be this special exotic thing and can go away as a subspecialty. I love that story. So I think we're participating in that happening. Mm. But obviously, I feel feel strongly like you just there's we I ultimately had to leave UCSF and pull mental health out of the medical model. It was there's too much momentum. There's too much stuff pulling you into a 15 minute encounter, a reduced notion of life. It's in the, it's, there's only so much work that can be done inside the walls of healthcare. And Mm -hmm. so finally felt the need to pull it out. And so that's what we did. So what do clients do kind of under your care at mental health? So mental health, M E T T L E like metal, your inner, your inner strength, which I love that word. We're not, not teaching someone how to be strong. I'm, being with them so they can realize they're strong or something like that. Um, so anyway, mental health, we pulled out of medicine so you don't need a referral. Uh, anyone can just call us up. It's almost like a hotline. Schedule an hour with us and talk about just about anything. And essentially, it's just a safe place to fall apart. And we started in the pandemic because uh, there was obviously a need for it. So that's, that's what we do. And most of our clients are actually caregivers. 60% are caregivers. Um, as we were saying earlier, there's not a, it's hard to find your place as a caregiver. You're always considered in, in, in service to another person. Your identity is sort of framed around your care to somebody else. But what about your needs? So people come to us uh, dealing with grief, questions around grief. People come to us with help navigating health care, communicating with their doctors or their family trying to make difficult medical decisions. Uh, also just to, like I was saying earlier, a safe place to confess and fall apart and say things that are hard to say and know that you'll be heard with someone who has no agenda. It's kind of that simple. Mm, that's great. All right. I'm going to ask one more question and then we'll open it up to the floor mm. for a little Q and a. Esalen is predicated around this notion of human potential, this idea that we're all walking around in a state of, untapped capabilities, but, you know, but given the right environment, 
the right teachings, the right setting, this place, we can become kind of transcendent. How do you feel like a thoughtful relationship with death can dovetail with a life that is rich in human potential? Mm. I don't, I not only think it can, like, I think it, it has to, like, I, to me, I think we're all, you know, one way or another, I'm, I'm trying to love reality. Like I, I want to love my life. I want to love what exists, not what might exist or I, I you know, I want to love reality and reality seems to include this thing called death and reality seems to include suffering and loss and you can try to avoid them. And I recommend avoiding them to some degree, but at some point, you know, <laughs> you know, it will catch up with you. And can you imagine like they make movies about people who don't die. They're all zombies. And you know, there's like, there's, <laughs> there's, there's something. And it's also true. Well, I'll just ask you guys. I love asking this question. Like, how many people here, if you could hit a button and live forever, how many of you guys would hit that button? Isn't that fucking fa- Okay. One or two. <laughs> yeah. Very brave. Very brave. But isn't that fascinating? We're all talking about death. Like it's this terrible thing that no one wants to do, but actually we're kind of, it kind of works. And you know, and there's something lovely about it. Like you can't fail at it. You can't screw it up. You know, you're going <laughs> to, you will get there. And there's something really kind of, and in a way, again, that sort of word, you're innocent. This is not, there's nothing wrong with you for dying. That is just, so, um, yeah. What were we talking about? What was the question again? <laughs> Jeez, man. I'm sorry, Sam. I can't recall the question. Bless you. Yeah, no, it's perfect. Mm. So let, let's open it up to the floor. In case he's got a microphone, How, has anybody got something they'd like to ask Dr. Miller? Hi, thanks. Um, I have a question, and it's in part informed by my mom, who's um, losing her mental you know, faculties. And so how do you do that kind of work to help folks restore sense of meaning when their own presence you know, is an ability to track and things is declining. Yeah. It's a, it's a doozy as you know, I mean, and it's just, it's not easy period. Um, one answer to your question, a response, maybe answers a little hard, a little strong because I, so much of it is managing this discombobulation, managing the loss and guiding a landing. It feels like it can feel like, feel that way to me anyway. And like we're talking one way or another, the discombobulation can happen quickly in life or over time. And dementia is a particular version that happens very slowly and affects, as you know, you know, the sense of who they are in the world and things like purpose can be elusive. And I think what has besides our naming that and normalizing that, what has felt like a great relief to some folks I've worked with is, is to realize meaning and purpose. Those are really powerful forces. If you can, if you're lucky enough to find a sense of purpose, it's awesome. Wonderful. The point here I think is that there's a world beyond purpose. There is, there can be. And for me, it's sort of the aesthetic realm the world of the senses. It doesn't need a story. Mm. Purpose tends to have need a story, a narrative. Like I exist to do this. It kind of often comes with words and it can get up in your mind. Whereas if you're really just gunning to have a sensation, well, any practically anyone can feel something. 
And you don't need to have the intellectual piece then to spin it into a story about why it's important or what it does for you or blah, blah, blah. That's nice if you get it. But my point here is there's a whole big, wide, lush valley on the far side of that intellect. And I don't mean to, you know, glorify what can be really difficult. But my comments are partly geared towards sort of systems issues. Can we as a society sort of pride... Can we get beyond our utilitarian thinking, this purpose thing? Mm-hmm. You know, can we exist for its own sake, do things for don't feel something for its own sake? So mm-hmm. if I sound critical, certainly don't mean that to view. It's more like, can we kind of create a world where people are safe to lose their mind? Because you're going to lose your mind either way. So, but personally, I do think gearing towards the truth of just the experience of this, of the sense in real time is as something of an answer to your question. Um, You started to touch on it again with the aesthetics. I'm really curious about what you mean by aesthetics because I'm kind of fascinated by that. And, Mm -hmm. and there seems to be a sensory component, but then I'm wondering also about beauty and Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So this is my favorite subject of all. I, I just think this is so, underdeveloped as a therapeutic domain, all sorts of stuff. So what I mean by the aesthetic is really sort of two, two criteria. One is that it is a sensory mediated experience that is, involves feeling. And that's literally what the word means. It kicks you into the world of the senses and therefore the world of experience. And the second criterion is for its own sakeness. That, at least my my own understanding of it, that was a sort of philosophical notion. If you want to read up on Kant, this came out of him. There's all this historical sort of lineage. But that second piece of the puzzle seems really, really key to me. Something existing for its own sake. Not doesn't need to be a means to an end. Means and the ends come together. Again, it's instantaneous. You don't need time. So if we're worried about death coming, you don't need time to have a feeling and you don't need intellect to have the feeling and it does it justifies itself art for its own sake being for its own sake so that that self-containment is so elegant and ultimately therefore so accessible and that so that's my answer to the question about the aesthetic sensory mediated by the senses and has a potency for its own sake it may also play into a utilitarian thing might have that life too But first and foremost, it has its own poignancy for its own sake. You talked a little bit about how to live life in a way to minimize regret. Mm. And I wanted you to elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah. So thanks for the question. Because, yeah, first two steps, at least. One is, okay, figure out what you might regret, like be able to imagine yourself in situations and be in tune with yourself to know when you've actually regret something. Sometimes we won't give ourselves that feeling. It feels lowly like jealousy or something, or we won't acknowledge it. So first is to kind of just feel it. Um, And so once you're in tune with yourself and kind of comes with self-awareness, then you start making decisions that are right for you and this is another aesthetic thing. How do you know something's right for you? Well, it often comes with a feeling. You could say intuition is probably an aesthetic experience, a gut feeling, you know? So part of the work for mitigating regret would be getting in tune with yourself so you know when you're crossing lines you wish you wouldn't cross. So that's a huge piece of it. 
And the other piece of of course would be just processing the inevitability of regret so they don't stack up, you know, that's a huge piece of the puzzle. And for me, that kind of goes with that, that enter, enter grief, which is a way to acknowledge the loss, acknowledge you wish it were otherwise be true to that and honor that. And then if you hang in there, you start seeing what you still have and you can keep moving. And in that way, you, you're done with that regret to some degree. You're, you, there's like, be clean. And that, that, that word can be a little charged, but um, otherwise we start snowballing. And by the time we get more than a couple of years in the planet, we're just like this ball of twine with hairs and st- stuff stuck to it. You know, it's not pleasant. So, so mitigating regret is, again, making decisions that are in tune with yourself. First, you got to get in tune with yourself. Second is giving yourself forgiveness to know that you're going to regret something otherwise. And, Make make room for regrets too. I have a question about I forget the name of the legislation in California, the right the end of life yeah. act. Um mm-hmm. and I just saw this very, very beautiful film called Last Flight Home. I'm not sure if you've seen mm. it. Mm-hmm. Um that was shortlisted for the Academy Awards this year and it's a, mm. it's about the filmmakers father's decision to end his life Mm -hmm. and at the time that she made the film there was the 14 day or 15 day countdown Mm -hmm. and you know throughout the course of the film you see this man and his family coming to terms with this decision and his Mm. uh, resignation to to end his life Mm. but you see you know part of it's motivated by guilt about what he's put his caregiver wife through for decades and part of it is his own suffering and uh, so my question back to you is having I'm sure navigated this Mm -hmm. many times like how do you help somebody you know take advantage of that Mm -hmm. um, legislation if they can because you have to be of sound mind right and be able to physically take it you got it like how do you navigate like the balance between Mm. relieving you know from compassionate standpoint relieving their pain Mm -hmm. but but helping them potentially wearing your psychiatrist hat or psychologist hat get to a place where they're ready to pass yeah i imagine that's a very complicated stew Mm. you're right yeah curious how you've navigated that and how you navigate that yeah, thank you. I lo- this this is a very juicy topic, a big question. So, so uh, guys, there's what she's referencing is the law in, since 2016 in California, uh, the End of Life Options Act (EOLOA), um, and that was based on the Oregon law from the 90s. It was the first state to legalize hastening one's death. You know, it used to be called physician-assisted suicide. Uh, that word suicide rubs people in the wrong way, in important ways, importantly different. It feels importantly different, and that came with baggage. So they dropped the word physician-assisted suicide, and now you hear references, medical aid in dying or medically assisted death or assisted death. So the law basically states, and I'm just using your question as an excuse to kind of set the table a little bit because it's an important thing to be aware of. You have to be of sound mind. Capacity is the word in medicine. You know, you have to be able to show insight into your situation because uh, you can imagine if someone's floridly delirious or don't know where they are, that it 
be pretty hard to follow their wish to end their life. Um, so have to be of sound mind. Um, then you have to get two doctors to sign off and there's a, there used to be a 15 day waiting period in between the two, the, the, you state your wishes in writing and in person, 15 days apart to make sure it was an impulsive decision to make sure and you're interviewed without family around to make sure there wasn't coercion, all these safeguards mm-hmm. to the law. And as you also mentioned, you have to ingest. So if, if you go through the process and a doctor writes you a lethal, a prescription for a lethal dose of medicine, then it's up to you in, in this, in this country, euthanasia is when like the doctor would inject you and end your life in that moment. That is only legal in some States prison systems. So in this country, so they'll give you your prescription, you go get the medicine and then you decide when you, if, and when you want to take it. And one of the things that's interesting is a lot of people get the prescription, don't end up using it. And one of the lessons there is just thought to be, well, then it's just, you know, it's kind of nice to know you have a parachute in the medicine chest. If shit gets too hard, I'm out, you know, I, I can get out of here. And that's itself therapeutic, you know? So, so that's a big piece of this. So anyway, that's sort of the basics of the law. In the last couple of years, they shortened the waiting period down to a few days, I think 72 hours. And also you have to have a terminal diagnosis. So death has to be coming soon anyway to make this all palatable for the American legislation and sort of mentality. So that's the law working with people who are interested in hastening their own death to your question is, um, you know, a lot of the job as, as it's legislated is for me to make sure that, like I said earlier, that's their decision. Have we, are they depressed? Is this depression talking? Because then I should treat your depression. Are you wanting to die because you're in horrible pain and no one's really giving you pain meds? Well, then I should give you pain meds and let's see if you, you know, so there's all this, it's this last resort thing. But if I'm honest, the families I've worked with, and so you go down that list and you make sure all these things line up. But to a person, the people I've worked with who've actually taken the drug, importantly, it's not, at least in my story, it hasn't played out as this flight from suffering or flight from misery where life has just gotten so horrible that even death is preferable. That's the kind of frame. But in fact, what a lot of people are doing is it's not a flight from suffering as much as it's a move towards a meaningful act for some people that they see. Sometimes it's a little bit of like, okay, I'm like, you know, I'm a quit before getting fired kind of a thing, you know? <laughs> so sometimes, you know, sometimes it's just like, no, my body, my life, I'm going to say when it's my time. And then you can control the experience in some way with who's around and the people. And, you know, so, so in my experience, that back to your question, if people make it through this process with me or any doctor who's doing it and they're finally honest and they don't have to, there's no theater around them proving misery enough for me to write the prescription. It very often flushes into a very beautiful, meaningful act and the last thing to note about it, and again, this is just my experiences. I've also noticed the families who have uh, gone through this process. A lot of us worried that it would further complicate grief because the idea that someone whom you love would choose to leave when on st- some level they still could be here and they want to leave, you know, that could be a real head scratcher for a lot of us. But what's been interesting is to note how in these handful of people I've been with, the family seem to have an easier time of grief. In some ways, maybe they pre-grieved with the person while they were still alive, you know? 
Anyway, that's just an observation. I can't tell you why that is the case. But did I answer your question somewhere in there? <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious to know how working with this patient population, working around death, has informed sort of your day-to-day practices and how you've become who you are today. Mm. Well, it's so, like, one of the good fortunes about this work is you get to live, you have vicarious experiences all the time. I might have all these reminders to appreciate what I have while I have it. And I, that phrase comes up for me a lot. I think a lot of us are pretty good at appreciating something once we've lost it. You know, so I have all these, all these people reminding me every day. So it, it can be this force to, to encourage you to live your life, to really live your life, really live your life. And for me, that means like we've been saying, like feel all the feelings. It's not just a positive, like head towards positive. It's, it's a welcoming all of it in some level and being true to myself and knowing that I'm going to, it's all got to go anyway. So therefore, why don't I play with it? Why don't I love it? Including the stuff that's hard. Like it's almost like an intrapersonal diversity. Like if you can, all the little nooks and crannies in you, if you actually welcome those little, those, those little guys hanging out in the crevices somewhere and you're, you know, bring those into you. You're reminded to fully, to be all that you are. And you're a little less likely to be ashamed of yourself because you know that that's the wrong answer. You've got people proving it to you who are actually closer to death than you, showing you, you know, and it also helps you be true to like, it's helped me learn how to grieve, which has been a very powerful force. So uh, these are all the ways that this work can be very enriching and it's gorgeous and it can all be way too much. And sometimes you got to put down and go out in the woods and play with your dog and do all that stuff too, which is also part of what my patients are reminding me to do too. <laughs> so, yeah. Hi. So I actually work in the ER as a PA mm-hmm. and, um, I feel like I deal with a lot of sudden death with people mm-hmm. who don't have a lot of palliative care around. And I work in a really underserved ER, so we don't even have a social worker on staff to sit with the families after. Um, so oftentimes we're left, I mean, it's the ER, you have other things to do. And I think in general, it feels shorted by everyone in that situation. So I was wondering if there was anything that you would recommend to like allow the grief Mm. to happen Mm. in that container. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that question. And, Thank you for what you're doing too, especially these days. I know your job to be very hard um, and very needed. Um, so one thing that, and there, there are actually cool little studies about this is sometimes, I, you know, when I was working in hospitals, you just don't feel like you have time to grieve or time to acknowledge this or that. It just, it feels like being asked to do something impossible. Um, one realization is that it really, you know, how the Greeks had a couple different notions of time. One was the accumulation of minutes, and the other one had something to do with moments. It wasn't a matter mm. of numbers of seconds. It was a qualitative thing, and that distinction has been very helpful. So we know this. So if you sit down with a patient at the bedside versus hovering over them, if you introduce yourself, you know, these are simple ways that this humanism actually transpires, and it doesn't take much time. Similarly, 
you know, if there is a loss or a death or someone is, is just pure emotion coming out, sitting down with that person, taking their hand often touch is so friggin' magical. Mm-hmm. Take their hand and spend maybe 12 seconds saying, I hear you. I feel you. I'm so sorry. Whatever you got to say, I, this place is crazy and I can't stay here for long, but I'm not going to forget you. Something like that takes a couple seconds. It will be so good for them. And it'll be so good for you. Um, you know, and if there's time permitting beyond that, closing the curtain, spending maybe a couple minutes, you know, and also with your peers back in the break room, you know, ritual can be super helpful having some place to note these losses. So don't to not pretend they're not happening. This sort of gaslighty thing, mm. just put it somewhere and it doesn't take much, but note it somewhere, you know, and then maybe on your way home from work, as you're washing this stuff out of you, remember that all that, that is a very difficult environment. You're asked to do nearly impossible things forgive yourself for what you couldn't get to Mm. let some feeling come back about that person you lost. And if it was something you wish you'd done differently, learn, you know, and forgive. And yeah. And then start again the next day, (laughs) you know, something like that or some version on that somewhere. You got to stay real because you're being exaggerated in this distorted field of the ER. You've got to somehow re-expand into the world and it, it can be five seconds of stepping outside on a break and looking at the sky. It can be your drive home, whatever, but you got to do it. You'll forget that a wider world exists. You know, I've touched by your own mother's death. I know that within my mother's death, I I have this belief that, and I wanted you to talk about what you've seen in it, that with all suffering, with all things, there's compensation nearby. Mm. And in the grief that I, you know, that I had is I found that there's this incredible beauty and that beauty compensated was the compensation. And I was just wondering in your experience with, with working with people at this point, Mm -hmm. if you could speak a little bit about compensation. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful notion. I love that notion. You know, at first I thought you're talking money, like there was a lawsuit possible or something. <laughs> I was like, well, where's this guy going? Cosmic um, but no, the, this notion that whatever your experience, whatever, however profound and consuming a feeling like grief can be, and it can be, as you know, yeah. all consuming. But anything that reminds you, and I think this is what you're getting, anything that reminds you that it still isn't the whole picture. It's still not everything, you know, and that everything is swirling and life and death are inseparable, you know, and loss and gain are related and beauty and terror, all these things you don't get. So you start noting these dynamics and then you have access to the compensation. And so I think whatever tells you that whatever you're feeling isn't everything, you know, remember that key into that. Does that kind of get at your question a little bit? Yeah, I just was wondering if, in your experience, if you just speak of things that you've seen like that. Oh, totally. Well, you know, the, some real obvious ones around like, you know, gosh, I now that I, I've watched so many families, like now that I've 
I finally let myself have feelings. I realized I wish I had said, I love you more. I wish I had, you know, mm. in this backdrop of loss and everything must go. It can be there. It can be a quickening. And so you can see these, these gorgeous moments where a stoic man finally sheds a tear or someone admits they had been wrong or someone forgives. These are all my, my you know, big compensatory, beautiful counterpoints too. And, and you don't, get them without the pain. That's part of the realization is that's the ticket. That's you can't. And that realization and that fullness is so, it just gave me chills thinking about it. And you don't, you just remember, you don't get one without the other. And then you can't, it's just hard to hate your experience anymore. You know? And I remember a version of this when I was injured, I had no idea how awesome my friends were. I had the most beautiful friends and I didn't even know it because we had nothing had come along to poke us to, so they could reveal how compassionate they were, how loving they were, how accepting mm. they were. They hadn't had an excuse to show that. Mm. And it took this to get that. And that seems like actually a pretty good deal. <laughs> you know, honestly, yeah. that seems like a pretty good deal. So versions like that play out all the time. And not always, there aren't all these bows on these situations, or let's say the bow can be delayed. You know, I've seen a lot of people, myself included, I lost my sister and it was many years, many years until I could even think about it or talk about it or realize some of the gifts that her death brought to me. And that was a very delayed response. Mm. So sometimes it's also a leap of faith, just knowing that these die, these, these pain and pleasures exist. These joys and sorrows exist. It's a faith to know that there's joy out there. But if you know that, then you can be a little more patient. It'll come. Thank you. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's make this the last one. Yeah. I had two within one, so you can pick. It's a uh, <laughs> fire round. Um, the uh, one question is about if you see f a lot of folks going, I hear about Switzerland being having sort of different process and if you see a lot of people leaving. Um, and the second question is you talk about one day you'll probably leave this work because of the, and I'm just wondering if you have a whiff of what, what <laughs> that might be. <laughs> well, so, yeah, so the first question, I, I have... Uh, it's not a lot of people that I've known who have, have considered going to Switzerland. And guys, just to bring up to speed, the, like we were saying earlier, this I think there's now 10, 10 states in the U.S. that have these aid and dying laws on the books. They have their structural problems, like we we're saying, the weight. Like what happens if you have ALS and you can't physically lift the medicine and put it in your mouth or you don't have a functioning stomach? The way the law is written, that's not allowed. So there are all these legal problems in this country around it. And I feel for the legislatures, it would be a very hard policy to write. And then you have to be terminal, you know? So what happens in places like Switzerland, there's a, there are a couple organizations there that basically take all comers. You don't have to be terminal. Uh, and so you can sidestep a lot of the sort of red tape hindrances. Um, of course, you got to fly to Switzerland and it's something like $10,000. Uh, never mind the travel. Um, so it's, it's a problem, but it's an escape valve that a lot of people, again, I've, a lot of people I've talked to are just glad to know it exists. I haven't, I don't know that I've met anybody who's actually 
done it. So, but I will say there's, I, you know, it's, it's tricky there. Canada is experimenting with a federal law. That's much more permissive. Younger people, like if I understand it correctly, they're either entertaining, like you don't have to even be 18 and you don't even have to have a, you know, you can, you can request ACM death for psychiatric illness, not typically thought of as terminal. And ooh, these open big old questions, big old questions. And people are moving towards their death because they can't get housing. And this is, there are slippery slopes and oh, so it gets really complicated in some ways as flawed as our state laws are. I'm glad there are some, there's some structure around and maybe we can learn and develop an ethos to go along with these possibilities. It's not going to happen in a day. So I'm glad Switzerland has this thing out there that if you can afford it and want to do it. Okay. Um, but I don't see a lot of people using it. So, sorry. That's the first question. Second question. I think you, you already asked like for me, this aesthetic domain is, is oh, I just freaking love it. So I would love, so if, if we have our way, metal health will, the practice will grow and, can sustain us as a job and that would be great. And then we'll can develop uh, a sort of a second line of business where we create places to die or affordable places to live. If you're really sick and disabled, um, universally designed architecture. So I'd really love if I could segue into that creative work is my answer to your question. We'll see. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. What a fabulous q and I really enjoyed that. You too, guys. Thank BJ. you so much. BJ, thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. Yeah. Here's to Maxine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. If you enjoyed the show, please hit that subscribe button or even better, share it with a friend. Until next time, be well.